an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Studios. I played piano so much when I was in that school. I played for my fifth grade graduation and one of my first performances um, in public. And at the same time, I also very vividly remember an orchestra coming to play for us when I was maybe in third or fourth grade and explaining the sections of the orchestra with film music and saying, like, here's the bass section, and then they play a bit of Jaws, or here's the French horns, and they play a bit of Star Wars, or, you know, any of those things I think were so impactful for me as, as a young person. This is How to LA, the podcast that helps you connect with the city and the people and places that make it unique. Today, we're talking to pianist, film composer, and LAUSD alumnus, Chris Bowers. Bowers has composed the scores for films like Green Book, King Richard, and The Color Purple and streaming series like Dear White People and Bridgerton, which is what you're hearing now. Bowers studied at the Colburn School, the private performing arts school here in LA, and the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. He went on to Juilliard in New York City and won the prestigious Thelonious Monk International Jazz Piano Competition at 22 years old. Here he's performing his winning selection, Shuffle Boil, at a live event here at Elias back in 2018. But that early LAUSD part of his resume, attending Third Street Elementary School, is very relevant to one of his latest projects. It's a short documentary that Bowers co-directed called The Last Repair Shop. The documentary is all about the technicians who work in a repair warehouse downtown, fixing and tuning the more than 100,000 instruments the district provides to students free of charge. And it's called The Last Repair Shop because it's the last of its kind. Uh, every other major city has privatized or gotten rid of their programs. When I spoke to Bowers recently about The Last Repair Shop, which is now nominated for an Oscar, he gave us an introduction to the film's main characters four of the 12 technicians who work maintaining instruments at the repair shop. Dana Atkinson, who's the string technician, he talks about how he was afraid of coming out of the closet. He's, he's gay, and when he was a kid, he had a long time struggling with that and trying to wrestle with you know, whether or not there was something wrong with him and at some point learned to embrace that. And a lot of his lesson in learning how to do that had to do with his parents and specifically his mother, who was a, a music teacher, and talked about this idea of just, just keep going. Whatever you do, don't stop. Keep going. No matter how bad of a train wreck it is, just keep going. You know, don't quit. Don't give up. Persist. And that mentality is what helped him learn how to move through his hardships and and accept himself. My story, it was a big adventure. Biggest scary adventure. <laughs> Patty Moreno, who is the brass technician, she's the only woman working in the shop. And she talks about coming here from Mexico and being a single mother. And she talks about her journey to this shop that 
finally gave her the stability that she needed in this this country. Um, then we have Dwayne Michaels. The wonderful woodwind department. They all got keys and screws and rods and springs. Has a really wild story of being in a hillbilly, uh, you know, bluegrass band when he was younger. My parents couldn't imagine that something bad could happen because, God, we had friends. We had and then lastly, neighbors. Steve Balmanian, who's the uh, supervisor and was the uh, piano technician. He lived in Azerbaijan as a, as, as a young man. And, um, you know, some of the tragedy that he uh, experienced. They start kicking all the Armenians out. Yeah, each of those stories uh, really are so powerful and moving and emotional. Coming up, more of my conversation with composer Chris Bowers about The Last Repair Shop. We'll get into how he got started in music and how L.A. shaped his story. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. And we're back with composer Chris Bowers, who, along with Ben Proudfoot, co-directed the Oscar-nominated documentary short, The Last Repair Shop. When I'm feeling tense, when I'm feeling sad or angry, the saxophone... ...calms me down. When I learned that Bowers had grown up near me in the mid-city West Adams area of Washington and 6th Avenue, I knew that's where we had to start. I grew up off of Crenshaw in Washington. What? No way. Yeah, super <laughs> close. Wow, that's so wild. We could have walked the same streets at a certain time and just met, you know, passing by. Exactly. Wow, that's really amazing. Yeah, I'm also an LAUSD product. You know, I went to school all my life here. And I also played wow. the piano for one year in seventh grade in middle school. Wow. So to me, it was very special to see your work, but also to know that you are of L.A. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, it's um, it's so crazy how big of a city it is and like how many of, of us that are from there still live there, but how infrequently I meet people that are from there. But it's definitely, um, you know, you always have a special connection with it and a special viewpoint of it when you're from there. Totally. You know, and and just to start things off with the documentary, um, you know, it's very emotional, but it's also very bright, at least in my perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's start talking about the shop. I found out about the shop actually through my co-director, Ben Proudfoot. And at the time, this is over four years ago, we were working on um, another film uh, that we did together called A Concerto, a conversation about my grandfather. So we were just hanging out one day working on Concerto. And he was like, by the way, have you ever heard of this repair shop? I know you grew up here. Like, Didn't you go to LAUSD schools? And for me, I was so surprised, not only that I didn't know it existed, and anytime I had an issue with, I played saxophone for a short while in middle school, anytime that they had to repair that saxophone, I assumed it was being sent back to the manufacturer. But I, I never considered how those things are, are kept in good condition, especially the piano, I mean, that that was my, you know, safe emotional space from the time I was in elementary school all the way through high school. And so I spent so much of my time in the auditoriums and the music rooms playing that piano. 
And it was always in great condition. I never considered who's responsible for that. So as soon as I heard about this repair shop and, and Ben was talking about making a film, I immediately wanted to be involved just so I could meet these people that that were working behind the scenes to make sure that young students like me had working instruments. Um, and what's also really wild is that out of the 6,000 pianos in the LAUSD system, two of the pianos that uh, Steve Bagmanian, the supervisor who was a piano technician, worked on were the uh, pianos in my elementary school and my middle school. Oh, wow. And so I was able to actually literally thank someone who had a, a hand in my progress as a musician. Oh, what a full circle moment. That's amazing. Yeah, and talking about the technicians, the four people you focus on each have their own wonderful personal stories, ones that you never really hear. And, and they're so important, you know, from immigration to LGBTQ rights, many things that are so personal, but also like big parts of U.S. history. A hundred percent. I mean, we're so lucky that each of these individuals volunteered to share their stories with us. And, and we really found them by by chance we went into the shop and ben asked who would be willing to be interviewed and these are just the four people that volunteered and it just so happens like you said they each have um very deep emotional stories that intersect with so many universal aspects of the experience in this country the film also highlights students from all over LAUSD and what music means to them the youngest was like eight or nine and they have such elaborate stories of of how music has impacted their lives, um, whether it's around their families or that themselves. How did that impact you when you listen to them? You know, I think it just reminded me what this young generation is is moving through. You know, I think for me, as I've gotten older, I oftentimes when I'm talking to a young person, think, you know, like, what do you know about, about hardship or wait till you get older and, and have certain experiences. And these conversations just reminded me that these children are dealing with, you know, the mental health crisis that, that we're having right now with young people and that they are dealing with family health issues or they are immigrants themselves and they're trying to find comfort and, and stability in this, this country or in their community. And so each of these young people, even at, like you said, eight or nine years old, talked about the fact that uh, their instrument, their musical instrument is so vital to them processing these really difficult life experiences and being reminded that that necessity to have that sort of outlet um, happens at such a young age. One of the things when I come across content that highlights the city is um, I want to make sure that it highlights it the way at least people that are from here has experienced it or people who love the city mm -hmm. um, know it. And when I saw the film, I was like, this is kind of how I view L.A., you know, the real L.A., the recording capital of the world. And this film is being shared worldwide. Um, it's the young talent, the maestros, the caretakers, the instruments. It's music and humanity. You know, were you intending to shed light on this city as well as the music? Oh, 100%. I mean, the thing for me, I lived in New York for 10 years. And, you know, of course, I feel like people in New York love to have a, uh, a lot of things to say about L.A., but of I always course. found that, you know, like, you, yeah, you know that. And I think that so many people that visit L.A. only see the version of L.A. that it, it would be like somebody going to New York and only going to Times Square. And New York mm -hmm. is you know much easier to kind of get a grasp of the city if you're not from there. But L.A., you really have to be embedded in the communities and the culture to see the real side of it, not just the Hollywood or the Beverly Hills version of it. And I think that for me, having that deep love for this city and to have stumbled upon this 
music repair shop and this program that exists here in a way that we can be incredibly prideful of the city. I think for me, this was the moment to highlight something that makes LA incredibly special and unique in this very um, grounded and uh, heartfelt way. I know about your introduction to music because you've told your tale a few times about how your parents were so eager to have a boy play the piano. How did you fall in love with music? What was the moment that was like, oh, yeah, I do, I do like doing what uh, my parents sought out for me to do? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's actually a moment that I, I really uh, remember very vividly. It's a very core memory. Um, I remember being at home and uh, needing to practice and having had a difficult conversation with my parents and feeling like a mix of anger and sadness that in my household was not something that I could maybe bring back to them in terms of, you know, uh, letting them know how I felt about our conversation. And I just remember sitting down at the piano and being like, I feel all of these feelings. I just need to like play for a second to like try to move these feelings. And that was a huge aha moment because about 30 minutes later, I was like, wow, actually, I don't feel as, you know, rageful as I did. I don't feel as like uh, emotional as I, as I did. And that was a moment for me where I was like, this is a vehicle for me to, to express my emotions and, and, and I need that. And I think that's, that's really the moment for me. I, I can't remember how old I was, but I just remember that from then on, I must have been, you know, somewhere between 10 and 12. But from then on, it was like, I need to do this because this is the best way for me to process anything that I'm uh, moving through. When did you know you wanted to become a film composer? Because that's a very different type of field. It's not many friends that I have or people that I know are like, hey, I'm going to become a film composer or I'm going to go into music writing this way. Yep. It, it was shortly after after that experience with the piano that I remember you, my family and I, we used to go see movies religiously the opening weekend. If it was a big movie, we were there, you know, the Friday night, if not, you know, Saturday morning that it came out. And I remember listening to the scores from those movies when I got home and realizing not only did I have the same, if not sometimes more of an emotional reaction that I did in the theater, just listening to the music by itself, but it, there was another click of an aha moment of like, that's a job. You translate emotions into music to help tell a story. And my whole connection to this instrument, to, to music and to the piano now is purely driven by uh, emotional expression. And so I told my parents when I was 12, my parents were very um, uh, set on me figuring out what I wanted to do with my life very early in my freshman year of high school. I was 12. I was a little younger than my class. But I remember telling telling them um, in the middle of my freshman year I'm going to go to college for for jazz piano, and then I'm going to tra I'm going to tour with jazz artists, and then I'm going to tour with my own band, and then I want to transition into film scoring at some point. And like that was my vague, I mean, it's very specific, but it was like my map of of what I wanted to do with my career at that age. And it's pretty wild how it panned out in terms of that order, but it definitely was a very different um, version of it. I, when I said that plan i was like oh i'll tour with somebody else for 10 years and i'll tour with my own band for another five or 10 years and then i'll become a film composer when i'm like you know maybe 40 or 50 years old 
And um, it just so happened that I happened to get a couple of film scoring opportunities earlier than I expected. And because I wanted to get there, that was my end goal. I just decided to jump into it a, a bit sooner than expected. But yeah, I was about 12 when I had that that idea of becoming a film composer. Did LA at all, you know, shape these musical tastes or styles that you have? Um, you know, we know that LA Central Avenue was a historic jazz corridor and many other scenes came out of here, including West Coast hip hop and all. Did that ever influence you becoming a musician? A hundred percent. I mean, so my my cousin is a rapper, his name is Murs. I'm from L dot A dot California A hot. Days got shade. Let me take you around the way. A lot of out of towners can't handle this city where you He has always been somebody that I've looked up to and, and his impact on the music scene in LA specifically, something I was always inspired by. I also when I was growing up would sometimes go down to the world stage and like play at those jam sessions. And I also grew up uh, around the same time as Kamasi Washington and mm-hmm. Austin Peralta and like, you know, all these musicians like Steve and, and Ronald Bruner, like some of these guys were a little older than me, Terrace Martin. But those are people that I either was friends with and or tangentially close with or knew. And growing up in LA at a time where some of the greatest young musicians were also from LA definitely made me feel even more prideful um, being in that uh, music space. You're now an Emmy winner, Grammy and Oscar nominated composer. Like, whoa, you know, and is there anything that you would tell your younger self advice that you know now that you weren't sure of back then um, about getting started where you're at now? One, just being patient and trusting the process. You know, I'm an incredibly, even still now, an impatient person. But (laughs) when I was younger, I was was even more impatient and not understanding why things weren't happening when I thought they should happen. And some older mentors always encouraged me to just be patient. And they were completely right. There's so many things that just happen in their time and when they're meant to happen and when I'm prepared for them to happen. Um, And the other thing is getting to know how my mind works in difficult moments um, so that I can react to it in a, uh, a helpful way. Because I think there's so many times where the internal chatter that feels somewhat involuntary uh, when you have difficult moments in life or especially in, in a creative career, it's easy to get wrapped up in those thoughts in a way that feels like there's nothing you can do but succumb to them. And, and it took me a long time to figure out one, that some of those thoughts just come up because of whatever, you know, experiences or, or you know, life situation, things that kind of cause them to be there, but just that I can navigate them and I can, I can figure out how to interact with them and, and use them sometimes in a useful way. And so that's something that I would, I would definitely tell my younger self to um, uh, be mindful of and, and try to uh, get into as early as possible. You composed a song for the last repair shop called Alumni, and at the end, you perform it with other LAUC alumni and students, which is a beautiful moment. Can you talk about that song and how it came together for you? Yeah, thank you so much. Ben and I talked a lot while we were making the film about wanting to have an ending that really captured the essence of what this whole film is about. Like the fact that this repair shop has been around for 65 years and so therefore has touched generations of some of the greatest musicians that have grown up in L.A. And how do we fill a room with as many of those people as possible and also have the technicians there because they never get to meet the young people they're doing this for. 
And so we reached out to a, a mutual mentor who actually introduced Ben and I named Peter Rotter, who is a music contractor in L.A. and also is a producer on the film uh, and is LAUSD alum as well. And he immediately was like, yep, I, my wife and I can easily fill a room with LAUSD alumni. Both of us went to LAUSD schools and um, you know, some of the greatest musicians that have already played on many of my scores are also LAUSD alumni. So Peter went to work on that immediately. And then um, Ben and I started working on the piece of music. I wrote the first pass of the music just wanting to capture again this exciting, thrilling, uh, climactic ending and that energy and also hitting each of the technicians musical themes because each of them has a theme that we've heard in the film that now is uh, being recalled in this medley. But what was a lot of fun about the process after that was uh, Ben and I would talk about how we could visualize shooting it and storyboard it in our minds based on the music and vice versa where we realized, oh, we need a moment to uh, feature each technician. So they should each have a musical solo and we want to have more calm response. We can do this fun camera movement and we want to do this sweeping thing. So let's have this woodwind path and cheer so we can have this camera movement sweep across the woodlands and things like that were a lot of fun to come up with. And then on the day, it was really wild. Like it's never been done before. An orchestra, almost a hundred people with people from the age of seven to nearly 70. And they're all playing this piece of music. They're singing for the first time. We have three hours to record this piece of music, and then only a few hours after that to film everything. And it was, you know, a mad dash. But what was so amazing about that room is that you have, you know, nine, ten-year-old Porsche, the violinist, sitting next to, you know, one of the greatest violinists in Hollywood. You have, you know, a trombone student sitting next to somebody who played on Jaws. Like all of these connections. There was so much love in that space and so much appreciation for these technicians and for this repair shop that by the end of the day, the musicians were coming in uh, over and over again telling us that this is, they're donating their time, that we didn't need to pay them for this because they wanted to give back to this, uh, this amazing program. And same with the studio we recorded at the world famous um, Eastwood stage on the Warner Brothers lot and they donated the the time on the stage for us and so there's just so much generosity and love and support for this that it really I think can be felt on screen because of, of uh, you know how happy everybody was to be a part of this. Chris thank you for taking some time to talk to me today I appreciate it. Yeah thank you so much I really appreciate you as well. That was Chris Bowers, co-director of the Oscar-nominated documentary, The Last Repair Shop. You can watch it now on Disney+, Hulu, and for free on YouTube. That is it for us today. We'll be back here tomorrow with the next installment of our series about loneliness and how to find community in LA. Tomorrow is all about how men are experiencing loneliness. But there's a lot to learn for women and non-binary folks too, so make sure you're subscribed. 
This episode was produced by Monica Bushman. Our Hot Toy Late team also includes Erica Washington, Evan Jacoby, Megan Botel, and Victoria Alejandro. Our executive producer is Megan Larson, and our engineer is Hasmik Pagosian. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.